Acheron, The Demon King, by Morgan Huxley. Find more great stories at audioiron.com. Chapter 14 Margaret sat across from Mary at the trestle table in the pub. She nursed a shandy and Mary drank red wine. Before them a plate of bread and cheese were displayed. Some part of Mary appeared to find the food interesting, but the mechanics of eating were appalling. She drank wine instead. I called because I think I now know what you meant when you said you were in trouble, said Margaret. She looked older and somehow more frail. I've been looking into that man who came to Beltane. Stuart, said Mary. He is quite dangerous, I believe, said Margaret. I hope you haven't gotten into something you can't handle with that club you joined. Mary looked at her, wondered what she was talking about. I don't know what you mean, she said. You seemed so upset during your last visit. And I used the library to do some research. I found out his father was rumored to run the same kind of club. They were said to kill young women. The last report of a death was just a few years after Stuart was born. They found the woman in southeast London. She bled to death outside a church. Mary stared at her. What on earth was she talking about? I don't understand, she finally said. What has this to do with me? Well, you said Stuart made you join a club and I thought it might be the same one. Margaret was looking at her as if she were a stranger. They gave me something, Mary said holding out her arm. Can you take it off? She held out her arm, displaying the bracelet and her badly damaged arm. I've tried everything. Margaret leaned forward, examined the bracelet, then reached out gingerly to touch it. Carefully she turned it around searching for a clasp paw hinge. They gave this to you? She asked. It looks very old and very valuable. Yes, said Mary. But it won't come off and I don't like it. You should go to the police, said Margaret. Will they be able to take this off? Mary asked. Margaret stared at her. Slowly she drew away. I think the police will be able to help you, she said. All right, said Mary. Where are they? And she stood up. Police. Yes, that was the correct thing to do. Stuart had no right to put this thing on her, to refuse to take it off. Without another word Mary grabbed her bag and left the bar, striding out into the street determined to find a police officer as quickly as possible. As she reached the far curb, she heard Margaret calling for her and turned around. Margaret was chasing her, running as though her legs were made of thin sticks. Mary saw the car hit the old woman, saw her fly twenty feet into a lamp post. She saw the driver of the car, another old woman, scream, fly out of the car, run toward the crumpled creature that used to be Margaret. Mary waited for the image to make sense, for Margaret to rise or the woman to stop screaming. But instead people came running from several places, including inside the pub she had just left. They were shouting as well. Some were using their cell phones. They were calling the police, ambulances. Mary walked back across the street to try and understand. She looked into Margaret's vacant eyes. Her head was an empty house. There was no one there. She was still staring at Margaret when the police came. She turned to the officer closest to her, a young man, dressed tall in blue. It won't come off, she said, holding out her arm to reveal the bracelet. What? He demanded, staring at her as if she were mad. Step back, madam. They put it on me but it won't come off. She held up her arm. Wasn't he supposed to help people in trouble? Shove off. He said sharply. Leave us alone or I'll drag you in. He turned to look at Margaret, 
then moved to the old lady who was sitting in her car crying. Mary watched the officer go and studied the second police officer that was talking to other people. They were no help, she found herself thinking. None. She walked away from them. Something inside of her was shaking, frightened, but leaving Margaret with the men seemed to quiet it a bit. Where on earth could she go? Who would help her? David. He would help her, wouldn't he? Where was he? Japan. He was in Japan. Too far away to help. But she could make him come back. But he was just another man. Too many men, she found herself thinking. Men were the problem. She walked a long way, eyes scanning those she passed, searching for someone who might be able to help her remove the bracelet. Before long she found she was passing things that were familiar to her. She saw a park with ducks and a green pond. She walked into the park, watching the late afternoon light fill it with gold flags. She remained there until darkness fell, until the moon rose in the sky. She found herself watching it with longing as it paraded across the sky. Then she was walking again. She had to go home but she didn't know how. When at last she stood outside a tall building, one with arched doors and long windows, she paused. There used to be someone here who could help. She entered the building, walked through it searching for her old friend. He could help her. Though she looked everywhere she couldn't find him. Instead, in a tiny alcove, a tiny grotto, she found a woman with tears rolling down her face, her feet illuminated by dozens of candles. Mary sat down on one of the long benches staring up at the woman and watched her tears fall. Can I help you daughter? came a voice. She turned toward it, seeing a man just inside the little temple. He was dressed in black and had a white notch in his collar. He was her father, she found herself thinking. I can't take this off, she said. She held up her arm to show him. He moved forward to look. He spared it hardly a glance but did take time to study her. Are you well my dear? He asked. He sat beside her, a small man, fragile. She found herself listening to his heartbeat. It was irregular, faltering. I am a daughter of St. Anne's, she found herself saying. I grew up here. And I think I am lost. No, my dear. You are found. Then the old man took her arm and led her from the room with the crying lady. They left the church through the choir and she found herself walking down a familiar hall. The cloister, she said. Yes, said the father. I'll take you to the mother superior. She'll be able to help. Mary nodded. In these dark halls, among her sisters, she would be safe. They could remove this curse on her arm and free her from this misery. The priest made her wait in a chair in the hall as he summoned the mother superior. When the woman came Mary felt no recognition. This woman was not her mother. The woman led her into a Spartan office. You are a daughter of this place? She asked. I've only been here five years, but I don't know you. I was raised here, said Mary. They gave me my name. It took a moment to remember it. I am Mary Shepherd. The woman rose, went to a file cabinet, then to another, and finally pulled a file from within it. Seating herself at the table she turned on the lamp, squinting at the faded print. Mary Kathleen Shepherd, she said. Ah yes, you were found as a newborn. Your mother had you in her arms when she passed away on our steps. No, said Mary. I was left here. I had no mother. The woman looked at her. I'm sorry my dear. I spoke without thinking. Your mother died on the steps and you were with her. It appears she took her own life. We accepted you as a foundling and perhaps, 
to spare you pain, no one mentioned how she died to you. It is quite accurate to say she left you on our steps. My mother was here? Mary asked. Something was shocking her out of the days she had been in. She could remember Margaret, watching her die. The story of the woman who had died on the steps of a church. My dear, I am so sorry. Please forgive me, said the mother superior. I should have been more careful. Mary stood up. She turned to face the woman and saw she was distraught. She raised her hand, peace daughter, she said. The woman fell back in her chair, eyes wide, mouth open. Holy mother, she said. Mary smiled and left her, walking out of the cloister and into the moonlight. Mary woke up on the bench where she had watched the ducks and geese late last night. The morning sunlight stumbled across her, prodding her in the eyes until she opened them. It took a moment to figure out where she was. Sitting up, she felt the band around her arm bang into the metal of the bench. What on earth had she been doing? The events of the day past were, like her memory of the ritual before, surreal. Had Margaret really died? What had that woman said about her mother? Mary could not decide what was real and what was a dream. She rose. She walked to the underground station at the corner of the park, jostling next to the other early morning riders in complete silence. Images flickered through her head like isolated frames of a movie. Nothing made sense. What she remembered couldn't be real. She got off the underground and got on a train bound for Cambridge. Sitting in the carriage she stared at the bracelet. It meant something, was important for some reason, but she could not recall what that reason was. Once in Cambridge she was reluctant to return home. She finally decided that the tremors in her hands had something to do with hunger. She honestly could not remember the last time she had eaten. It was certainly days ago. Food tasted odd, felt foreign in her mouth, but her utter dislike for it seemed to have faded a bit. Once she was finished with her meal, she found herself remembering Margaret's words. Something about Stuart's father had frightened her. Perhaps she should call Margaret and ask her to explain. Her mind shied away from this notion, images of vacant eyes filling her head. Of course, she told herself, that was insane. She simply could not have watched Margaret die. That must have been a dream. But nevertheless, she would not bother to call the woman. What could she say? I had a dream that you told me something about Stuart's father and then I watched you die? That was ludicrous. She left the tiny restaurant. Cambridge was a university town which was to say that the university was spread around and throughout the town rather than being a town surrounded by a university. It had several libraries, all of them linked to a networked computer system. If there were any information at all about Stuart's father, she would be able to find it here. With that aim in mind she walked to the closest library, the music annex, and waited for a place at a terminal. As the light faded from afternoon into evening she started searching for information on Stuart, his father and their society. Afternoon faded into evening before she found anything interesting. Like his father, Stuart was an archaeologist. His specialty was Britain from prehistory through the Middle Ages. He had a reputation for finding exceptional structures and for positing theories for their significance and symbology that other researchers seemed to find exciting. Arthur Trelevan, who never married, seemed to have acquired a son without explanation. Thirty years ago, the boy had simply been named his heir. When Arthur died just five years later, the boy was a very wealthy orphan. Stuart went to the finest schools and like his father excelled at his chosen profession. When he turned 21, he came into his estate. Now, at 30, Stuart was both wealthy and well-respected. 
try as she might, Mary could find no mention of a club started by Arthur Trelavan, and no record of a woman found dead on the steps of St. Anne almost twenty-five years ago. Of course, not all such records would appear online. Some things could still only be found in newspapers. Did she care enough about this stupid delusion to pursue it further? She wasn't sure she did. She must have bumped her head during that ritual, had suffered a concussion, and thus had spent the past two days recovering. She felt better now, if not entirely well. It was time to go home. Stepping into the street she summoned a cab. In under an hour she was at her own front door. Ten minutes later she stepped out of her clothes, into a bath, and fifteen minutes after that she was in bed. She felt weary to the bone, weak, and a little ill. Sleep came suddenly. She was in darkness, running, being pursued. She heard voices calling for her, demanding her response. She ran to the pool, stared up into the night, and begged for the moon to save her, but it would not come down nor let her rise up. Then he was there. Stuart walked to her, face cold and merciless. He dragged her from the chamber, through the darkness, not caring how she fought. She wrenched away, running from him, then heard him pursuing her again. She was awake, heart pounding. She turned on the light just as the door to her room opened. She screamed. Stuart stood in the doorway watching her, waiting for her to quiet. He seemed unconcerned by her distress, made no attempt either to approach or go away. At last she shuddered to a stop. We have been calling you for two days, he said. I apologize for coming over unannounced, but we've been very worried. Did you go somewhere? She stared at him, waited for him to say more. When he didn't, she lay back down in her bed, trying to still her racing heart. She must be going mad. She could not distinguish what was real and what wasn't anymore. Stuart was here to help her. He was concerned about her. There was no reason to fear him. He was her friend. I'll go if you like, he said, but entered the room, leaving the door open behind him. I just want to make sure you are all right. She held up her hand to stop his approach. I am fine, she said. Her voice shook as she spoke. Where have you been? He asked. Why didn't you answer the phone? I go where I wish to go, she said. Who are you to command me? He moved closer to the bed despite her warning, his eyes traveling to the metal band around her arm. She followed his glance to find her arm with deep black bruises from elbow to wrist, the uneven color punctuated now with oozing punctures and long, deep, scratches. What the hell have you done to yourself? Stuart sounded angry, as if she had done something stupid that she should be scolded for. I want this thing off she said sharply. He knelt by the side of the bed, took her arm in his, examined it, then he said, I guess you do. She found she could hardly breathe. His touch was sure, confident, careful as he examined her wounds. Beneath the smell of soap, she could smell his skin, could feel his muscles flex as he moved. His eyes lifted to meet hers, and she felt him assessing her. As if in a dream she brought her other hand up to caress the back of his neck drew him to her, their lips met. He shifted closer, followed the line of her jaw with a finger as he deepened the kiss. She lay back on the pillow, something inside her stirring. He broke the kiss gently, stood up to look down on her. She felt herself flush with embarrassment. Two minutes ago, she had been terrified of him, and now all she could think of was how much she wanted him to make love to her. He returned to the doorway, leaned against it. You can't take it off, he said. No one can. 
It's there for another eleven days. What is it for? She asked, struggling back into a seated position, aware that her face must be as red as a fire engine. It's just an ornament, he said. Stop trying to take it off. She shook her head. It hurts me, she said. You can see that it doesn't, he said. It's loose. Just leave it alone. Stay with me, she found herself saying. I'm afraid. He said nothing, studying her. Then he shook his head. He said something she didn't understand and fury washed over her like scalding water. Get out, she said, or I'll kill you. He turned into the darkness of the hall and she heard him going down the stairs. She lay in bed a long while looking at the white plaster of the ceiling. Rage ebbed into misery and she started to cry. She fell asleep with the light on. Mercifully, this time she had no dreams. David called early the next day. From the instant she heard his hi babe. She found herself angry. Hello. She responded coldly. What use was he to her, there on the other side of the world? Images of him playing with paper and metal boxes all day long filled her head. I have been trying to call you, he said. Where have you been? Where have I been? She demanded. You and that woman, that assistant, I know exactly what you have been up to. He was having an affair. She could see the woman in her head, a pretty Asian girl, well connected. A new wife to go with a new job. Lee? He asked. Don't call here again, she said, hanging up the phone. She left the house, striding toward the barn. The sound of the phone ringing followed her until the answering machine picked it up. Men, she found herself thinking, so stupid, so useless, so good for nothing. She started to work on the bracelet again, determined that this time she would have it off. Ahmed came as evening fell, finding her in the barn where she still sat with her tools. He knocked on the open door. She turned to look at him, then returned to her work. When he stood a few feet away she looked up. Can I help you? she demanded. Actually, he said. I believe I'm here to help you. Stuart said you hurt your arm. I can see how. He had his little black bag in one hand. She knew what was in it. More biting metal things. Nothing that would help. I want it off, she said as she continued trying to cut the bracelet off with a saw. The tin snips hadn't worked, but she thought she might want to try those again in a minute. I don't think it will come off, he said carefully. But perhaps I can stop it from hurting. I want it off, she said without pausing. May I look at it? he asked. She eyed him warily, then dropped the hacksaw and held up her arm. He moved forward to take it. Blood quickly covered his hands and he pulled a handkerchief from his pocket to dab at her arm. You'll need a tourniquet if you don't stop, he said. I can give you something to make it bother you less. She slipped out of her chair, reached up to pull his head down, brushed her lips against his. She held him when he would have pulled away, opened his mouth with her tongue. She felt his body shift, hand coming to her hip drawing her toward him. No. Mary heard Stuart's voice and turned toward it. He said something she didn't understand, and somehow, she responded in the same language. The resulting conversation was unintelligible and angry, responses clipped. Mary, let Ahmed give you something to help the pain go away, said Stuart. Fine, she said. Perhaps if she did as they asked, they would leave her alone. A syringe appeared in Ahmed's hand, and before she could say another word steel was biting into the vein of her good arm. 
she felt numbness slide into her shoulder, across her chest, into her head. Power seemed to coil up from the ground to fill her. Ahmed flew across the room to slam into the wall of the barn. He fell forward a moment later, blood welling from multiple wounds across his back. She had thrown him into the long nails on which she dried masks. Satisfaction filled her. She turned to Stuart, from behind her she heard her tools rattle, all the tools she had used to try and pry this device from her arm. They flew toward him, twisting and turning like living things. They flew past him into the darkness. He looked stern but not frightened. Without a word he entered the barn, collected Ahmed, and carried him out over his shoulder. She followed him, hurling epithets, then returned to her work. One way or another this ornament was coming off. Recording and Story Copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music created by D. Kurtzman and licensed from Pond5. Find more great stories at audioiron.com.